All right, Romans chapter 2. Go ahead and have that open. We'll start back with Romans 2. Then we'll go back to view number 2. Let's do just a very quick review. View number 1 is, remember these are four views dealing with the fact. Remember how we, uh, how we have summarized the problem. Uh, the Bible seems to clearly teach that we are justified by, however, we will be judged according to works. Therefore, this creates a possible dilemma, a problem, okay? Um, so we need to find a solution. So we have talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, and we're using a book called uh, Four Views um, to help us try to at least navigate the different, uh, the, the different possible ways of looking at this. Uh, do you need a Bible? Got one? Okay. Um, I carry like five with me okay, at all times, so I got who knows how many I have. All right, so uh, we're looking at this book, and the reason we're, we're using this book is here's kind of an academic approach to try to answer it. This demonstrates that it's not an easy answer, which goes against the way most churches handle it. Number two, we're allowing these views to speak for themselves. I'm not simply summarizing them. I'm trying to read them. Now, Sarah has the book. I'm not reading every word. I'm skipping here or there. If there's something I do skip that you think is important, you know, scream, yell, because I, I don't want anyone to be, you know, misled in any way, shape, or form. Um, but we're, we're looking at that. And so far, we've looked, at, we've looked completely at one view. We've moved on to the second. The first view is... Christians will be judged according to their works, but at the rewards judgment, not at the final judgment. Therefore, uh, judgment according to works has nothing to do with what issue? Salvation. Therefore, we can say we're justified by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, nothing to worry about. Works only have to do with our rewards. End of story. That, that would work great, but I'm not going to go through all the possible problems with it. Okay. Now, view number two is what? We're justified apart from works, but by works, simply put, uh, we'll be judged according to our works at at the final judgment, right? This is not for rewards, but the works will only serve as what? Evidence, and their words, not my words, evidence of justification, which I'm going to continue to argue is a theological problem and a mistake. It can't be that, unless we have to redefine what? Justification is, to be fair, he did do that, all right? So, which is a, a major problem. Okay, now, uh, what, uh, so far in view number two, um, we have two points. What was point number one? Justification is apart from works. And what did he do um, under that point? He looked at lots of scriptures from Paul, right? Um, and he used Galatians and he used Romans to demonstrate what truth? He wanted to really emphasize this truth. Okay, we are not justified by works. We are not in any way, shape, or form, okay? He wanted to overemphasize that and he, he pushed it and pushed it. Now, there were some major points that we made this morning, right? We talked about Galatians 2.16 and it's better context. We talked about... Um, just how easy we can mishandle the scripture without even realizing it. Uh, we talked a lot about whether you want tension to be removed or you want a text to be exegeted correctly. These are major points that we made this morning. So we're going to jump right in um, and see how far we can get. All right, We're going to go back to point number two that he made, which was what? 
Justification by works. All right. And he starts in Romans chapter 2. So if you have Romans chapter 2 open, let's read verses 6 through 10. And we read this, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Who will render to every man according to his deeds? That is speaking of God. If you look at the end of verse 5, talking about the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. Right? That's the, that's the passage that led to all the problems, correct? So if he's going to go to justification by works, where does he begin? Romans 2, 6 through 10, all right? Now, we're going to back up just a little bit from where we stopped this morning, and we'll catch up hopefully quickly. Now, I know this is tedious going through the book, but, I mean, this is the only way to be fair. Agree? This is the only way to be fair with this, so stay with me. I'm trying to make it as as interesting and engaging as possible. Some of this I have to try to read through quickly. If you do need me to repeat or are confused, raise your hand, and I'll be more than happy to, to clarify it. Here we go. The previous discussion seems to be the end of the story. And the previous discussion is, we're justified by faith, not by works. He says that would seem to be the end of the story. And that's how it's usually preached, right? And you look at all those verses that he looked at that we talked about this morning, and you're like, man, it's clear. We're not justified by works. However, he's going to say, that's not the end of the story. There are more verses to this song. Then the first one, Paul disavows justification by works in some text, but then in other verses, he teaches that we are justified by works. Paul's teaching about works in Romans chapter 2 is remarkable, for the text is nestled within Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to Romans chapter 3 verse 20. And we know that it is pretty crazy to read Romans 2, 6 through 10, and then you're like, wait, when you get into Romans 3, you're like, wait, what? Whoa, something. But for some, pe- for some people, they go right from Romans 2, 6 through 10, go right into chapter 3 and never perceive a major problem. And I, if you've ever read it that way without perceiving a problem, you need to tell me how you did it because um, you may have the solution, which is just ignore the problem. Okay, But that's, that's not uh, the way we're supposed to do it. All right, here we go. Um, Romans 2 is remarkable for the text is nestled within Romans 1 uh, verse 18 through Romans chapter 3 verse 20 where Paul affirms that no one is justified by works. In Romans 2 6, Paul articulates the thesis for all of Romans 2 6 through 11. Remember we talked about that this morning? And what's his thesis? Namely that God will repay each one according to his works or his deeds. Verses 7 through 10 unpacks his thesis, all right? The meaning of this statement is in a chiastic arrangement. And remember, we'll just go through it. I'm not going to break it down the way he does, but I'll just go through each section. We just read it, so it'll be easy for you to remember. Romans 2, 7. He says, he will grant eternal life to those who seek glory and honor and and incorruptibility by patiently enduring in a good work. 
Number two, conversely, he will pour out his wrath and anger on those who will pursue evil, Romans 2.8. Number three, those who carry out evil, whether they are Jews or Greeks, will experience affliction and distress, Romans 2.9. Next, but the one who does what is good will enjoy glory and honor and peace, Romans 2.10. Paul is certainly not talking about rewards above and beyond eternal life here. That's the first point. I want to make sure we are very clear about that. To say Romans 2, 6-10 is about rewards is completely misunderstanding the text. There's nothing there that's talking about rewards. All right? Yes? No? Okay. Verse 7 demonstrates without doubt that eternal life is at stake and whether one does good or evil. Indeed, in the context of Romans 1 through 3, the entire issue is whether one will escape the final judgment on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So, he makes two points. Point number one, there's nothing here that would give you any indication that he's talking about rewards. Number two, the broader context, chapter 1 to chapter 3, is about eternal judgment and salvation. It's not about rewards. So you can't come along and then cut 2, 6 through 10 out and say, this is only about rewards. It doesn't work based off the language. It doesn't work based off the context. Everybody got that? Yes? Okay, all right. Um. The doing of the law is not optional, but necessary on the day that God judges the secrets of human beings. For the doers of the law will be justified. Everybody look at Romans 2.13. Everybody see that? For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Everybody see it? Pretty clear? Okay, all right. Remember, don't, you know, don't get mad at me. I didn't write it. Paul, Paul wrote that, okay? Romans 2, 26 through 27. Let's look at it. Romans 2, 26 through 27. Everyone there? Therefore, if the uncircumcision keeps the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it, if it fulfill the law... Judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. Right? Now, they, they, they just have a reference there. He doesn't say anything about it. And then he continues. Many interpreters, of course, think that Paul speaks hypothetically in Romans 2, 6 through 10. All right, so let's stop here. Everybody, I want to hear, I want you to, if you're taking notes, you need to make sure you kind of follow this, this logic. All right, here's what he's doing. He gives us Romans 2, 6 through 10. Okay, first thing he does is he says there's no way to take Romans 2, 6 through 10 and say it's about rewards. Everybody got that? What are the reasons that he gives us that it's not about rewards? What are the reasons he gives us? Number one, the language demands that it's, that it's about eternal life and punishment. Number two, the broader context, Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 3, is about what? Salvation, not about rewards. So that eliminates that possibility according to this view. Everybody got that? Okay. Number two. Now he argues, 
What so, so some people try to say Romans 2, 6 through 10 is simply what? It's just about a rewards judgment. He says it can't be. Number two, some people, he say, says Romans 2, 6 through 10 is simply hypothetical. That what Paul is doing is he's coming along saying, hey, Bobby, you're going to be judged according to your works. Right? And it's a hypothetical case. If you're going to be judged according to your works, you know what's going to happen to you, Bobby? You're going to, you're going to be sent to hell. All right? So he's making an argument. Right? Now, a lot of people like that because that's, that would resolve the problem, right? Yes? Okay, right. It doesn't fix the other scriptures, but it would at least fix Paul. Correct? Right? So, does that work? Well, let's see how he handles this argument that it's possibly hypothetical. Many interpreters, of course, think Paul speaks hypothetically in Romans 2, 6 through 10, since the final conclusion of his argument is that no one is justified by works of the law. Romans 3, 19 through 20. And is that not what Romans 3, 19 through 20 says? Everybody want to look at it? Do we need to read it? Okay, everybody see verse 20? Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If that's kind of the conclusion of his argument, it makes it hard to know what to do with Romans 2, 6 through 10. So the simple way, some people, it's just hypothetical. All right, now, here's what he has to say. Such a reading resolves the tension between the two texts. It does resolve the tension, does it not? Yes. Now, the problem is, resolving tension between texts is not the same thing as exegeting and actually interpreting text. What you're saying is, I don't understand this one, look at that one, problem solved. That's how some people do it. I don't understand this verse. Look at this verse. I fixed my problem. That's not doing hermeneutics. That's not exegeting anything, okay? That's simply trying to find an answer to the problem, right? So he says, such a reading resolves the tension between the two texts, but it fails as satisfying exegesis, exegesis because of what Paul writes in 2.26 through 29. Let's go through 2.26 through 29. All right, now, what is, now we read this once. Th- these verses are a little confusing, but we'll try. Now, he says the exegesis does, that exegesis doesn't work because of 26 to 29. He doesn't give us a lot of information. He does have a footnote here that I'm going to re- see what it says here in a minute. I don't think I've looked at the footnote. It may just be where he gets this information from. But let's read it. Everybody ready? Verse 26. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his circumcision be counted for, his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision. Stop right here. What's the argument Paul's making in verse 26? What's the argument Paul is making in verse 26? Okay. What, what, okay, you're, you're kind of telling me what it says. Tell me what it means. Okay, it, 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 it identifies two kinds of people, right? It identifies two kinds of people, does it not? All right, uncircumcised and circumcised. Uncircumcised would be whom? Gentiles. Circumcised would be Jews. All right, so those are the two categories. Agreed? 
Right? Now, what does he say can happen with one of these categories? If, if the Gentiles keep the righteousness of the law, As circumcision. This seems to make an argument that even if they don't get circumcised, there's a way to keep enough of the law to be counted righteous. Wait a minute. That sounds like what? Works. That's what he's saying. It's not a satisfying exegesis when you've got a verse like this that seems to be making some argument about law keeping and enough to be declared righteous. That's, that's why he's saying, wait a minute. You can't just ignore this. Verse 27, and shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who uh, by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. Now, this is all dealing with works. And then verse 29, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. That's verse 28. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart uh, in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. It seems to be that there's some kind of righteousness you can do by doing something. That's his point. You'd have to deal with these kinds of problems in the text. You can't just say, hey, what Paul's saying about a judge according to works, don't worry about it. Just don't look at it. Well, I've got other passages right here in Romans 2 that seems to be saying I can do something to be counted righteous. That's his argument. Does everybody see his argument? Yes? Okay. <clears throat> all right. He does have a footnote here, but I'm not, that'll lead us down a different path. Okay, all right. So he says, a hypothetical reading fails in Romans 2, 26 through 29, confirming that Romans 2, 6 through 10 should not be read hypothetically either. In other words, I would have to read Romans 2, 26 through 29 as being what? Hypothetical. And if I can't read that hypothetical, then I can't read Romans 2, 6 through 10 hypothetical. That's the argument he's making. Everybody got that? He says the reason we can't do that is both texts address the same issue and are in the same context. We read in verse 26 through 27, I'm going to read how he has it quotes, if the uncircumcised person keeps the ordinance of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And the one who is uncircumcised from birth who keeps the law will judge you who are a transgressor of the law despite the advantage of the letter and the circumcision. Right? We have a conditional statement in verse 26, and hence verse 26 and 27 on their own could be, could be constructed as hypothetical. Paul considers a situation where an uncircumcised person, a Gentile, observes what is commanded in the law, which is an astonishing statement in its own right, since circumcision was commanded in the law. In any case, if the uncircumcised person does what the law requires, he will be counted as circumcised. In other words, he would be considered a covenant member, a part of the people of God, since he observes what the law requires. Paul takes the argument a step further. Not only will the uncircumcised person be counted as a covenant member, but since he keeps the law, he will judge the so-called Jewish covenant member who possesses the law and circumcision but failed to do what the law says. He's making an argument. This comes about what you do. 
Not, not even just about being circumcised. This comes about with what you do. If you do the right things, you'll be judging the one who has the law, the Jew, and circumcision. So this is all works-based. All right? The new covenant character of Romans 2, 28 through 29, or he just says, okay, the new covenant character uh, of Romans 2, 28 through 29. Since Romans 2, 26 through 27 is conditional, we could interpret it hypothetically, but such a reading runs aground on the rocks of 2, 28 through 29, where Paul says, for a Jew is not a Jew outwardly, neither is circumcision outwardly in the flesh, but a Jew is a Jew in secret, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by means of the spirit, not the letter. And the praise of such a person is not from human beings, but from God. Now the reason why he's arguing is that clearly is not hypothetical. Right? So, like, if you start with the hypothetical thing, you're, you're going to just be messing up the whole text. Um, he says the, the word for, linking verse 28 to 29 to verse 26 to 27, indicates that the former provides the ground or reason for the latter. The logic runs like this. Now, he's going to give us the logic of what, we, of what we just read and all of that. The uncircumcised person, the Gentile, who keeps the law will be counted as a covenant member, in other words, as a Jew, and he will judge disobedient Jews on the last days. For true Jewishness and true circumcision are not outward and physical matters. They are matters of the heart and are the result of the Spirit's work and a human being. Paul doesn't leave the readers in the land called hypothetical. He brings them into a land called actual. Speaking of the Spirit's new covenant work of transforming hearts, Paul contrasts in 2.29 the Spirit and the letter. We find the same contrast on two other occasions in Paul, Romans 7, 6 and Romans, or 2 Corinthians 3, 6. In both texts, Paul does not speak hypothetically. He refers to new covenant realities actualized by the Holy Spirit. There is no reason to think that Paul has something different in mind in Romans chapter 2, verses 26 through 29. Now that's a lot of work, but what is he simply trying to get you out of the habit of trying, or what is he trying to stop you from doing? Trying to, sit, trying to get out of, the, uh, out of the problem by simply saying, Romans 2, hypothetical, let's move on. Which is what the pastor did at Southside. You, you can't do that. And again, these kinds of arguments and exegesis of Romans 2, they're not hidden in some vault in the Vatican. Okay, That pastor at Southside could have read the same thing I have read. He could have known, wait a minute, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And then he, it should have been his responsibility to take his congregation on the path of trying to figure out what does. Now, the book continues. It was tempting for the Jews to think that true Jewishness and true circumcision were outward of physical realities. But Paul punctures such illusions here. A true Jew is one in secret. Paul picks up in verse 29 the language of final judgment when God will judge the secrets of human beings. Gentiles who are Jews in secret will pass the final test, for they are circumcised in heart. The circumcision of the heart was what Israel lacked. And he quotes, uh, he references Deuteronomy chapter 10. But the Lord promised in the last days to circumcise the hearts of his people. Jeremiah laments the uncircumcised heart of Israel in his day, gives us a number of references in Jeremiah. 
But hope is not extinguished, for he looks forward to a future day, to a new covenant, when the Lord will write his law on the hearts of his people. Paul almost certainly reflects on that promise here, and he combines it with Ezekiel's prophecy that anticipates the day when the Lord will put his spirit within his people so they will walk in his statutes. Ezekiel 36, 26-27. The new covenant echoes throughout Romans. Verses, uh, chapter 2, 26 through 29, which shows that the fulfillment here is not hypothetical. God has fulfilled his covenant with Israel and Judah, and uh, shock of shocks, Gentiles who are circumcised in heart and recipients of the Spirit's work are part of the true Israel. Now, we could get into an argument about true Israel, but we could get into an argument about that. I don't care if you call it true Israel. There's still got to be promises to national Israel. I think we've established that. All right. The obedience of the Gentiles, Romans 2, 26 through 27 then, is not merely hypothetical, but actual. Their obedience, however, now listen, here comes his argument. Are you ready? Here is like, this is where now he he is going to jump from trying to... He's, this is where he's going to try to solve the problem. All right? So let's establish it so far. What is he completely destroyed? This text is not saying it's about rewards. Got it? He's given us multiple reasons to say that. He's given us multiple reasons to say this text is not hypothetical. The reason it's not hypothetical is once you get to Romans 2, like 26 through 29, he's dealing with deep issues that go all the way back to the Old Testament, referring to the New Covenant, and those are not hypothetical realities. And what he is arguing is that, wait a minute, if a Gentile, this is what he say Paul is stating, that if a Gentile will keep the law, right, he can be considered circumcised because he is, he, is, he is demonstrating he has the circumcision of the heart, which is the true circumcision Israel lacked. And if you get that, you'll be judging the Jew who has physical circumcision. Everybody got that? Yes? All right. So, now here's where he's going to jump into, because remember, what does he still got to bring into all of this? How works fit into our justification. And now this is where it comes. Are you ready? Their obedience. Whose obedience? The Gentile who's doing all the right things, even though he's not circumcised. Their obedience, however, comma, stems from the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. So this is not work of the flesh, He's going to argue this is works of the Spirit that the Spirit is producing. This would not be Old Testament law work. This would be New Testament Spirit work in and through you. Well, he's using the Gentiles as a a basis for his argument. This would be true of anyone in the New Covenant, Jew or Gentile. All right? Okay? But does everyone catch what he just did? What is he getting? What does it look like? Where does it look like he's going? If you don't know where he's going, let me explain. He's going to say, yes, Bobby's works are going to be required as evidence. But what works? Not works necessarily that Bobby does, but the works that God does through Bobby. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, but that's, that's not an answer. 
right? Because, because here's what we say. It, it's still something Bobby did. We're just saying Bobby didn't do it. The Spirit did it through him. All right, so now this is how we're going to judge. Okay, so, all right, so let's say we get to judgment, right? Well, Bobby, where's your works? Well, he said, well, the Holy Spirit didn't go through, didn't do enough through me. And then guess what would be the answer? You never had Holy Spirit. Okay, so now, again, that sounds good, but you just think this through. Right? Well, how much time do y'all spend reading, studying, and memorizing the Bible? You got the same Holy Spirit I got. Now, so now guess what? You're, you're, not, you're off the hook. Who do you get to blame? You either blame the Holy Spirit or you start doubting that you have the Holy Spirit. This raises, this raises nine billion problems. All this tries to do is say, look, it's not the work I'm doing. God's doing the work. Okay, God's doing the work. Where is the work? So when MacArthur gives us one of those tests, we should all, we should all pass it with flying colors. Why? Because the Spirit's doing the work. Well, can someone have the Spirit and it, that work doesn't, is not evident? Now, some Christians say, no, if you have the Spirit, the work will be evident. How much does it have to be evident? This, is a, this sounds so good, but it's not. It, this, is, this is problematic all day. See, this sounds good when you're sitting there, right? It sounds good for you to give me the answer. I'm like, okay, that's your answer? All right, let's go. All right, Bobby, you should tell me about your week. Where was that spirit? Show me, show me what works of the spirit. Show me. Well, I mean, I tried to do this. Well, that Mormon I know tried to do those things too. Right? It sounds good until you really start putting it to the... Remember, that's, that's the problem. When we took the evidence thing and we put it to the test, I mean, we, I posted all those sermons, and you start listening to the test, what, what happens? I think most of the people who listen to those tests, I think y'all, y'all all said something like, well, then I'm not saved. It, it, it's a tricky proposition. Let's see what else he goes here, and maybe you'll understand a little bit better. Their obedience, however, stems from the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. There is no suggestion that the Gentiles have observed the law in their own strength as if they autonomously do God's will. All right, now here's, I ha, this is the problem I had with Christianity early on. Okay, because here's, here's the, this raises a whole problem and I've, I've told you I've had major problems with this within my, my Christianity. I get so sick and tired of Christians selling something that amounts to nothing more than spiritual snake oil that is not true. It, it's just garbage. And here's what we say. All right, Bobby, you're saved. You got the Holy Spirit now. Guess what the Holy Spirit's going to do for you? He's going to empower you to live out that Christian life. Now, wait a minute. If I have the power of God inside of me, and He's working through me, what should I be able to pull off at minimum? Obedience, minimum. How? What kind of obedience? I think uh, hopefully God could get me to perfect. But we all say I've got the Spirit inside of me, and then what do we throw in? But I'll never do things. 
So, and this, this, this is what we say. We can, we can stop the Spirit's work. Oh, wow. Can I? That's, that's a pretty weak God, did you know? Did y'all know how weak God was? The only thing to stop Him from getting me to perfection is me. I'm more powerful than the Spirit of God. Now, if you, nobody's going to say that, but would explain it to me. I mean, we all know Christians, right? Well, they have the Spirit in them, and they do all kinds of things, right? Husbands and wives fight. Hus- uh, parents and children have all kinds of problems. Problems at work. People don't love one another. People hate one another. There's gossip. There's slander. There's lust. There's sin of all different kinds. Why? Why is the body of Christ filled with so much failure and so much sin if we all have the Spirit of God doing enough work through you that's going to be evidence that you're saved? Either you have to lower the evidence to the bare minimum or, or not very many people are saved. See, everyone loves to say that's the answer until it gets put back on you. That's the thing I used to get irritated with the lordship view. Lordship salvation. Okay, let's put it to the test. None of you are saved. No, no, you can't say that. You said it. Right? It sounds so good that the Spirit... I mean, because that's what I was taught when I was a new believer. Right? I'm a teenager. Okay, I've got the Spirit of God living in me now. Whoo! i got a power that the lost person doesn't. All right, then I should be better than all lost people. You're going to tell me you're better than all lost people? You, now, you will be able to say that if you pick the really bad lost people. But I'm talking the average person goes to work, takes care of their family. Now, you, now And so guess what you start looking at? Well, look at the movie. You start working on this. Oh, they watch the list. Okay, so if, if I don't watch their movies, if I don't listen to their music, and I don't... Oh, nah, see, look at, how, look at me! Woo! I'm better than all of them! And then I watched that when I was an independent fundamental Baptist. And then what did that lead to? We're sitting in a homeless shelter. A woman just became a Christian. She's up there crying, singing a song about God saving her, and the women are going, I can't believe she was wearing those kinds of clothes. That's the Spirit of God working in them. Right? Woo! Salvation has come. So godly. Instead of being broken and, 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 and rejoicing that a sinner has now put their faith in Christ, they're worried, oh, she needs to get her clothes right. Why? Because that's the only way to prove to themselves that God is working in them because they know in her heart she's no different than they are. And you're no different than that. that, that I, have, I have major... Now, I know when I say these things, all oh, my email blows up and people get furious with me. But I, I'm just so tired of playing the game that we have some supernatural power that that lost person doesn't. I've been a Christian too long. You've been a Christian too long. Now, if you're going to sit there and tell me you've got that power in you, okay, man. That, don't argue with me. Just show it. Just show it. I've been, I've been your pastor too long. I know, I know how much power y'all have. So as I ask you to do something, what do I get? Uh, it's too hard, too busy, don't have enough time, can't this, can't that, can't... You know, oh, A lot of can'ts coming from people who have God living in them. 
Shouldn't I expect more? See, now when I put it in that way, you're, you're, not, you're not as quick to say, wait a minute, I like this teaching. You're, you're hesitant then. Now it could be because we're all, all of you are lost. But then therefore, what would we never have? Assurance. Which we all claim that we can have. <laughs> Do you see? Oh. I, 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 trust me, I want to believe so desperately that because I'm a Christian, I mean, I do believe that I have the Holy Spirit. I just don't know how it works because if I walk, because we, we make this claim that, you know, I used to sit with lost people all the time at work, right? And sometimes it was the lost people at work who I trusted the best, who were the best employees, who didn't gossip, who didn't slander, and it was the stinking Christians I worked with who wouldn't show up to work on time, didn't do their job right, gossiped about people, slandered, cut corners, and I and, and in fact I, I, I wanted to fire every Christian that I ever worked with. Lots of people, I'm like, bring them to me. No, what? And so, guess what? Our, what's always our answer when a story like that is told? Well, they weren't really saved. Oh, you know that? So you see, I have a, I have a fundamental philosophical issue with that teaching. And I, and, I, and, I, and I taught it, and I believed it my whole Christian life, but it's just enough years of just going, where, where's the power? Where's that power? Where's that supernatural? How many studies do we need to see? Christians and divorce, pretty equal to most people. It may be a little smaller, but it shouldn't even be close. Right? All the books about Christian teenagers, and you're like, uh, they're just like lost teenagers. Where's, where's, where's the power? Where's the power? Show me the power. He's going to make an argument. Yeah, you're going to have works. They're not Bobby's works. They're works God does through him. Okay. And those works can be judged. Well, you're still having works as a part of it, right? Okay. So, all right, here we go. So, um, there is no suggestion that the Gentiles have observed the law in their own strength as if they autonomously do God's will. They have been transferred from darkness to light through faith in Christ and are the recipients of the Spirit's transforming work. Their spirit wrought obedience warrants eschatological reward. The, uh, the, it says, the, the will receive praise from God for being true Jews and uh, circumcised in heart. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 to speak of the end time reward that will be given to those who are faithfully carry out the mission of the Lord. To sum up, Paul teaches here that works play a role in the final judgment. Listen, they are necessary for final salvation. But how does that fit with Paul saying that justification cannot be obtained by works of law? Clearly, he doesn't think the necessary works merit salvation. What does he mean will be, what he does mean will be answered before this essay concludes. Okay, we know what it means. So it's not, they don't merit your salvation. He's going to argue they do what? Prove your salvation. Why would Paul introduce the spirit-produced obedience of Gentiles in a section that has as its major theme universal sinfulness? Often in Romans, Paul anticipates a matter that he takes up later in the letter. And he gives some examples where he does this. 
Hence, in Romans 2, the obedience of Gentiles anticipate Romans 10, 19, 11, 11, and 11, 14, where the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's saving program is intended to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Thus, Paul does not stray from his main theme in referring to Gentile obedience for their inclusion underscores the sins of the Jews, demonstrating that they need to turn to Christ for salvation. All right, so... He, he's saying that, don't, don't get confused yet, Paul, Paul's going to make a later point that he's making it now. And what point he's trying to make is, why can Gentiles obey? They have the Holy Spirit. And because they have the Holy Spirit, what can they do? Obey. They, they obey a law, they do the works of the law. They can do that because they have the Holy Spirit. Right? Again, that sounds good. But, and I know many of you may want to still believe, hey, I have the Holy Spirit and, and that's the reason I can do all of this stuff. You can believe that all you want. I'm not going to argue with you. I, I'm just tired of arguing with Christians about it because, you know, they argue it. And then what, all you see is the evidence of them being just as sinful as any other person when it gets down to it. Right? I mean, we, we, and you know it in your, in, in your heart of hearts. You know when you lay down at night and you think about your own life, you know what you are, you know you're a sinner. And you can say the Spirit is working in you, but if He does, I mean, come on, just show it. I mean, we got Muslims who give up their lives, strap a bomb on themselves, and just blow themselves up for Allah. That's commitment. You can't get Christians to do a Bible study Monday through Saturday. They don't have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. But I'm too busy. I can't do a Bible study. Just Stop. Okay, at that point, I just get sick of the whole thing. whole thing is a game to me. Oh, I have the Holy, I have the Holy Spirit in me, and I do such good things now. That just sounds so arrogant, doesn't it? You know, that poor, if, that, if that person at work, if they had the Holy Spirit, man, they wouldn't have gotten divorced. Really? So there's never been Christians who have the Holy Spirit have ever gotten divorced? Anybody here going to say that? I hope nobody here would say that. So why, why did they get divorced? Well, why didn't the Spirit overcome it? Now, now what we typically say is we, we, can st- we squashed it. Well, then that, that's a weak spirit. Right. Obviously, what, the, the, here's the one thing. Does the Bible seem to indicate we have the Holy Spirit? Yes. yes. We can argue that the Holy Spirit's purpose, we can, do, we can definitely argue it's there to do what? to seal us to the time of our redemption. It's the earnest of our inheritance, right? It's the down payment. It's the kind of the engagement ring, right? Okay, that we're, so we're secure because of the Holy Spirit. It shows that we are in possession, that we belong to God. Okay, those are no issues. What he does in me and doesn't do in me, I'm going to be very careful how I speak it because we, we speak it in such a way that seems to give you, when you're a young, because I got this when I was a young Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. And then... When I left church, I realized that I was still a teenager with some sin problems. And I remember struggling with some certain sins as a teenager, going to my pastor, First Baptist Church in Tuscola, and I came to the conclusion that I have to be demon-possessed. I even told my pastor, I have to be demon-possessed because I keep struggling with this sin. Why am I keep struggling with sin if the Holy Spirit... Because he, he hyped up that the Holy Spirit's in me, but when I... But I kept finding myself going, I'm having problems here. So either I'm not saved or I'm demon-possessed. 
Because the demon, because I've, I've got some spirit that's more powerful than me. I'm not being able to stop it. So but he never could give me a good explanation. Like the spirit's inside. Other than this is usually I got something along these lines. Think of it this way. You have the spirit inside of you. And you have your sinful nature inside of you. Think of them as like two dog, dogs. Right? And the dog you feed the most will have the most power. So for the spirit to really have the power I need it, I have to feed it. And how do I feed it? Church, prayer, Bible study. Well, I was like, I don't miss a service. I read my Bible like 15 hours a day. What, what, what else am I supposed Well, you know, you got you to gotta do this. And it was always all these things I have to do. Well, if I'm doing them, where's the spirit's work? I shouldn't have to do anything. Remember the whole argument between monergistic and synergistic sanctification? I mean, I, I struggled a lot with this as a young Christian. I just, I just never understood why I still struggled with sin. And then I got married, and then you struggle like, man, you have issues with husband and wives and fights. And arguing. like, why are we fighting and arguing? We're a Christian couple. There should be, never be an argument. There should never be a fight, right? She's got the spirit. Submit. Say, yes, Lord, forget dear. Okay. Right? Remember Sarah and Abraham, right? Yes, Lord. Say, yes, Lord, and be quiet. There shouldn't be a problem. And then I should be able to love her as Christ loves the church. I've got the spirit. And I'm like, well, I don't quite love her as Christ loves the church. What's going on? I want everyone to realize that is a re- this is why many people, and I, and I will make this argument, this is why you have a lot of people who come into the church and leave the church. Because they come in with all these promises. And then the reality seems to be missing. Am, am I the only one who ever experienced this in your Christian life? No, sir. Oh, were you not promised a whole lot? Oh, yeah. And so what they typically do is like, okay, uh, so we have to have a revival service, right? And, okay, to get the fire going, right? Okay, or we have to have a conference. Okay, right. you, all these things to try to get you re, rejuvenated and get you, get you fired up. But that's just manipulation. We see in church camp, kids go, you know, oh, yeah, how I hate church camp. Oh, how I hate church camps. They all should be burned down. Okay, but kids go, they go. Yeah, and uh, you got the fun, and then you got the manipulation. And you got kids at that altar. <laughs> I love Jesus. I'm going to go back and do all this. And then three weeks back in school, You were the one crying three weeks ago at church camp saying you were going to turn, turn the world around for Jesus. What happened? Okay, and the same thing happened with revival with adults. Right? The only difference with revival is you're not isolated and indoctrinated. That's the only difference. Okay, but it's the same manipulation techniques at work. I hate that stuff. Because when I was a young Christian, I went through those circles. Now, I didn't go to church camp. I refused to go. Okay, and you know, when my best friend, his girlfriend went to church camp, he couldn't go that year. And he, she came back from church camp. She was changed. She came back pregnant. That's how church camp was going for her, right? So that worked out really well, okay? So, uh, you know, I don't remember. It was First Baptist Church, Tuscola. I don't remember what happened uh, to her. I just remember Raham going, uh, uh, well, man, uh, I don't even remember what I said. I don't think I knew what to say. Forgive? I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. I didn't know what to say. I mean, what do you say in that situation? Okay, but the point is, is um, 
I went through that cycle, right, of like, okay, yes, I got the spirit working in me. Okay, what do I need to do? Well, you see the contradiction there? I got the spirit in me. I shouldn't be asking what I need to do. Yeah, what is he going to do through me? And, and you've, all, you've all met Christians who get that disillusioned point. They feel like they were sold, they were sold something that doesn't become a reality. And then, and then their marriages fall apart, their lives fall apart. And, 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 and that's, it bothers me like, because my vision when I was a young, you know, when I was young and I wanted to be a pastor, I had this vision that, okay, there'd be all these broken people, right? And they'd come to Jesus and then their lives would be, their marriage would be restored. Their, their relationship with their kids would be restored. And they'd be coming to me asking questions. I'd give them a couple of Bible verses and they'd go study the Bible. And it, just, it would be just like a hospital that everybody would be getting better. I, I can't say that that's the way it works. Churches fall apart. Why did churches split if we all got the Holy Spirit working in us? Uh, on the way, I was listening to uh, Stand to Reason on the way to here, and some caller called in. He's, their church having all kinds of problems. The pastor left, and now they closed down one satellite church, and those people don't want to just come to the other churches, so they're just meeting in the parking lot, and, and, people, and, pa- and some of the staff is just quitting, and people are just leaving the church, and, and it's just like all these problems, and I just, want, I just wanted to call in and go, there shouldn't be a problem. You all got the Holy Spirit in you. You're overcomers. We know that that's not the reality. Everyone here has been through church splits. Right? Yes? No? Yeah? Not pleasant. All these people claiming, all, and I'm not going to say the people involved are, don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, when I was a young Christian, that's what I thought I was, not saved, not saved, not saved, not saved, not saved, not saved, not saved. But at some point, somebody's got to be saved somewhere. I'm the only people saved is MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and John Piper. Everyone else is going to hell. Okay, that, that, that doesn't work. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah, probably find out they're not saved. So you see where I'm struggling with this. You see where I'm struggling with where he's going. I know, I know what he's trying to do. He wants there to be works. He just wants it not to be our works. It's the works done through us. But guess what you still are going to have to have? Works, which to me, even just saying that the origin of the work is not me doesn't work. Now, if you say it this way, God will judge works. His work. That's accredited to not anything I'm doing, but something he did that's accredited to my. Now, if we could say that, but the text haven't really given us that there. All right, let's continue on. I know I'm kind of going a little off topic, but I really want, I just, I, I don't know if y'all struggle. I don't, I, I, whenever I mention this online, all I ever get is 900 emails saying, you just deny the work of the Spirit. You're an atheist and you're ungodly. And, and then usually they'll start saying things to me, which then I just say, yeah, your email really demonstrates the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, you've cussed at me. You threatened to kill me. Okay, yeah. Yeah, godly. And sometimes you just like, you don't even know what to say to these people. And, and I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to make you doubt Christianity. I'm trying to just make you realize, sometimes I think we perceive that Christianity is going to be one way. And then I, I, th- I, think we, I think everyone who becomes a Christian as an adult, we have a perception of what it is, right? And at some point, I think we all come to a realization it's not the way we thought it was going to be. Some people say, forget it. Those of us who continue on, 
just change our expectations and deal with the reality of it. We don't ever really try to understand it. So whatever, y'all have reset your expectations. The, the difference may be between me and you, and I can't speak for all of you because I don't know what you've done. I've never stopped struggling with why the reality doesn't match with what I was sold. I've always struggled with that. And you may not, but I, I still to this day do. I, I just, why is it not the way I was told? Why, why, why didn't it work out the way? Because it just hasn't. I wish it would. Trust me, I wish it would, man. I wish I could just give someone Jesus and boom. Yeah. I mean, I, I want that. I don't, I don't not want it. I want that. It's just not the way it is. Too many broken families and broken lives and broken churches and, and just, and which stays true to that we're all sinners. So whatever the spirit, and that's, and that's how come I challenge the interpretation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, old thing. Remember, I challenged that, completely reinterpreted that verse based off the chapter. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that that's how we should perceive a person, not how I should treat. If Bobby becomes a Christian, I treat him as a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. I don't hold it against him. Not that everything changes. I was taught that everything changed. And then I realized it doesn't. And, one of the, and, when, and for those who don't know, when I, when I first became a Christian, um, one of the major, major areas that became a major conflict between me and the church was I spent Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night, without exception, in the club. Where I was every Thursday night, every Friday night, every Saturday night. I was in the club, right? I bought music for the club. I mixed the music for the club. I was always in the club. And I was always on the dance floor, and I was always dancing, all right? Loved it, loved it, loved it. And met all kinds of people there, right? Now, these people would obviously be viewed as the reprobate. But many of these people went to church, okay? Many of these people claimed to be Christians. And I saw all kinds of people, right? All kinds of people. There were there people there trying to just hook up with someone, you know, for a physical relationship. There are others who just love to dance. But um, I, I was always there. I did not drink alcohol. So I always had water at my table. And, I, and a lot of the, the, the women at the club I became good friends with because they felt that I was safe, right? I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to get them drunk. And if they got drunk, I'd always try to protect them and say, hey, 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 you know, you need to stay here, stay here. And they knew they could, we could dance and have fun. So, but I was being judged by Christians that I shouldn't be in there because that was ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. And I had all these lost people going, man, I'm so glad you're here. Right, because you're keeping me out of trouble. Now there was ways I won't go into how I would dance on the dance floor that clearly was not godly or right and could not justify it in a million years. Okay, let's not go into that. Okay, that's a whole different subject. Okay, but the point is, is, is in this club I met these people, and many of these people were, were you know nice and and there was lots of positive things. And then I would meet the Christians who were judging me. Many of their lives were like they ended up divorced, falling lives falling apart, all kinds of sin, gossip, slander, church splits. And I'm like. I think the club is better. That's sometimes the I, I sometimes basically I think the club is better than the church. And Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll is famous for the, for for preaching a sermon where he basically says the local bar is really better than the church. That's Swindoll. No, I, I, you know he got in all kinds of trouble for making that kind of comment. You know he got in trouble. <laughs> Now, he wasn't saying go to the bar. He was just saying that sometimes we act worse than the world. And that's a reality. 
Why, if the Spirit's the one doing all this magical work in me? It's not so magical. Does that make sense? All right, so this, 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 you already say I'm going to have problems with his view, right? You already say I'm going to have major problems with his view, but we'll, we'll go on. Now he's going to go to the necessity of obedience in Galatians, right? Remember how he used Romans and uh, Galatians in uh, the first point? Now he's coming to the same point. And now what does he want to show? In both books, Paul is going to require what? Obedience, right? The necessity of obedience for salvation is not restricted to Romans 2. In fact, it is common theme in Paul. He gives all kinds of passages. He's got 2 Corinthians. He's got Ephesians. He's got 2 Timothy. He's got Titus. I'm not going to go through them right now. He's just going to make an argument that Paul calls for the necessity of obedience in multiple places. All right? We may come back to this, but I'll just try to give us a little further and then stop. But for space reasons, I will focus on Galatians. As noted above, the letter to the Galatians features the gospel of grace. Paul emphasized that righteousness and the reception of the Spirit are not obtained via the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16, which we've talked about this morning. But the Pauline emphasis on grace does not preclude the importance of good works. In fact, the grace of God is the foundation and basis for good works. Now, I don't have a problem there. I think the foundation and the basis of my good work should be God's grace. God's grace should motivate me. I agree with that. I, there's, I don't disagree with that. Faith alone does not, to paraphrase a popular saying, meaning that faith is alone, for faith expresses itself in love. I got no problem saying faith should express itself in love, and faith should express itself in obedience. I don't have a problem with that. But what happens if it doesn't? If I'm saying by faith alone, is it required that it does produce these things? Again, it depends on how we define what? Justification. Believers are called uh, upon to walk in the Spirit. I don't have a problem with that. Be led by the Spirit. March in step with the Spirit and sow to the Spirit and thereby, thereby manifest the fruit of the Spirit. The one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. The contrast between corruption and eternal life shows that eschatological salvation is at stake and whether one sows to the flesh or sows to the Spirit. Now, now stop right there. See, that's dangerous. Hey, your future salvation is dependent on what? Whether you're sowing to the flesh or sowing to the Spirit. That sounds like a works-based Um, And and what that sounds like what? My work, not the work God's doing through me. So, all right. Uh, The phrase eternal life represents the life of the age to come. It will hardly hardly do to say that eternal life refers to rewards here. Such an interpretation betrays special pleading, which does not accord with the way the term is used elsewhere. Sowing to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit are not optional. For the one who fails to do so will experience eschatological judgment and destruction. That's pretty clear. Sowing in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit are not optional. If you're not sowing to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, he's claiming you're going to be what? You're going to go to hell. Now, how is he going to try to get out of it that it's not my works? That I'm going to sow to the Spirit and walk in the Spirit because the Spirit is working in me. But sowing to the Spirit sounds like something 
I have to do. To walk in the Spirit sounds like something I have to do. Which sounds like he's getting ready to make an argument that works are going to be required. He's, he's, he's doing a, a really bad job of just trying to make this evidential. He's almost making it sound like salvational. Now, I will argue evidential really is the same thing as saying it's salvation because if you don't have it, you're not. But there's a problem. So we'll stop right there. I want to keep going, but because we kind of took such a detour, we need to try to wrap this up and then try to make it make sense. All right, here we go. This is what I would say. So far in this view, he's not given us anything really to hold on to. Agreed? Agreed? He, he is he's trying really hard to say, hey, you're not ju- justified according to works, but yet you're justified by your right. And so he's really just emphasizing the tension. He's not given us, he's given us one little hint, and the hint he's given us is this. The reason works are going to be required is because they won't be Bobby's works. They'll be God's works that work through him, so Bobby gets, he's not doing anything. That sounds good, but then the problem comes where? If the Spirit is really working in everyone to produce these works, at what level does the Spirit have to work to prove that Bobby is saved? And what will no one be able to to articulate to us? What level? Was the Spirit working in David? Was the Spirit working in Peter? Was the Spirit working in Paul when he says the things I want to do? I don't. And the things I don't want to do? Where was the Spirit? Now, well, we, we, sometimes we try to make arguments, well, well, you know, David didn't have the spirit the way that we try to get off the hook there. But the bottom line is, is throw out all the biblical examples, your life and my life serves as examples. Because there's days we all struggle that we don't really want to read the scriptures, we don't really want to study the scriptures, we just want to do our own thing, and we're, and we're, not, we're not really... Inter- and sometimes we go through our whole day not worried about if people are going to heaven or if people are going to hell. We're not worried about apostasy. We, we just kind of live our lives, and we, we try to be good people, right? But we're not sitting there, we're, we're not, you know... We, 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 selfishness shows up in our life, uh, unloving, uh, unloving attitude. We, we have a million issues that show up in our lives every single day. Agreed? That's why every single night we could say, Lord, forgive me for the things that I did and forgive me for the things I failed to do because I am a sinner. I have, every night we could say that. And if the Spirit is doing some magical work in us, why can we keep saying that? So I struggle with this idea. So let me just, I'll try to make this clear so that no one leaves here thinking that I'm an atheist, all right? I believe that every Christian has the Holy Spirit. I believe that. I am not going to argue the Holy Spirit's not working in your life or my life. I just don't know what it looks like and how it works. And no one else does. Do I, I believe that you have a responsibility as a Christian. And that responsibility falls on you. You are called to do what? Put off? Put on. You are called to mortify the flesh. You are called to not make any provision for the flesh. You are called to take up your cross. 
You are called to read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible, love the Bible. You're called to do those things. And if you want to say, well, I'm not doing it, God is doing it in me, then you should be able to do it better than me. Because I feel that most of the time I'm doing it. Now, I'm not going to say God's not at work. I just don't understand how he works. Does that make sense? I'm not saying the Spirit's not there. I'm just saying that the Spirit can be in two people and it'll look really different. Now, as a young Christian, my answer was always just, they're lost, they're lost, they're lost, they're lost, they're lost, because I, I, I bought into the MacArthur view. Everyone, I just basically came to the conclusion, the whole world's going to hell. There's no one saved. I'm not saved. No one's saved. Because I can never do enough to, re- to ever feel like I can meet up to MacArthur's requirements. So I'm not. So I get, MacArthur's the only one saved. I, you, me and Stacy used to joke that way after reading his book. MacArthur's the only saved person in the world. Everybody else going to hell because I can't. I can't pass the test. And we, y'all looked at the test. Right. I mean, y'all y'all saw the test. Now, y'all listened to. I know y'all listened to the sermons. We went through all of Jonathan Edwards' test right here at church. All, no one passed. And even even for them, what did they do? Here's here's what you have to do. But. But they always made an exception. So it makes no sense. So here, I believe we all have, that all believers have the Spirit. And do I know who a believer is or isn't? No. My kids know that. Never told them once they were saved. I said, you make a profession of faith. If you're truly saved, you have heaven. I can't tell you if you are or if you're not because I have no clue. Time will tell. Time will tell. Time always tells. Okay? Right? I can't know your heart. You, you can't know mine. You don't know I'm saved. I don't know you're saved. But if you claim to be saved, how, do I, how must I treat you to the best of my ability as if you are, and I must challenge you to live as a Christian. And I pray that God's Spirit is working in all of us. And I believe He is working. I, please, stay, I'm not saying He's not. I just don't know how it works. Because I know that no matter how much the Spirit is present in the life of a person, what, else, what follows? Sin, failure. So we can't, we can't sell something. It's like, like, a, we, like a used car salesman. You know, this thing runs great. It was owned by an 80-year-old lady. She only drove it to church once every, you know, month. That's all she ever did. And you get the car and then find it. Wait, there's all kinds of problems with it because it was actually owned by a, you know, a drug runner who used to run drugs to El Paso and back, being chased by cops, doing, you know, 50 million miles an hour, you know, and having changed the oil in 14 years. Okay, wait, wait, wait. That's, sometimes I feel like that's how Christianity did. We sell it. Like, victory! And then you're like, I still struggle with sin. Amen? We need to be more realistic and not give people false hope. And, and because, I mean, I, I think we all know a lot of people who used to go to church and don't go to church anymore. And they all usually sound very disillusioned. And they're either disillusioned by their own life, that they could just never live up to it. They're disillusioned by the lives of Maybe our, our, my, our life, my life. And you just have to say your, your, your view of Christianity was wrong. Because clearly that's not the way it works. And for him to try to bring this into it, I'm, 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 I'm already like, dude, you can't, you can't do that. It's not, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. We're going to have to find a better solution than this. But we'll, we'll let him see where he's going. All right? Any questions? I know it's controversial when I go there. Don't want to post it online, but I don't care. I know people get mad at me, but 
Remember, what do I say? Don't argue with me. Just live, just live, just you live that life and videotape every day. And then, then she sent me the videotape where I can see how perfect you are. Okay. And guess what you'll typically see in that videotape? A lot of imperfection. Or a lot of stopping and editing of the videotape. Okay. There's a lot of cut, the skip jumps there. What happened? I sound like you turned off the camera for three hours. I wonder why. Okay, yeah, because you're a sinner just like I am. All right. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we're, we're, we still don't have good answers. But Lord, we are being able to be honest and open with, with the reality. And the reality is this. Everyone in this room is a sinner. And what we are hoping on for our salvation is not what we can do, what we have done, what we are doing, or what we will do. Our hope, until we see different, is what your son accomplished. We're going to cling to what your son did on the cross. We're going to trust in him and him alone for our salvation. And Lord, whatever the spirit is doing in our lives, we'll be the first to acknowledge. We don't understand it. We are sometimes confused by the the presence of the spirit and the lack of, of what we may see as evidence. Lord, just help us trust in what we can know and just do our best to, to work through what we do not understand. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...